Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we're joined by Aman Thacker, Senior Program Manager at Indiaspora and an Adjunct Fellow with the Wadwani Chair at the U.S.-India Policy Studies at Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. That's CSIS for those of us who follow CSIS. His research focuses on India's foreign and security policies. Aman, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. We'd love to hear some more about your background. I'm always interested in professionals. I find that very few of us have real linear progressions from what we think we want to be when we grow up to where we end up today. Although a lot of people who we talk to in the international sphere end up doing what they want to do, it just takes us six or seven turns along the way. So if you could fill us in a little bit about your background, where you came from, and how you got to where you are now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, like you said, twists and turns along the way, all very exciting. Um, I um, really got into international relations uh, as a area of focus, uh, which I thought would be great before I went off to law school. That's why I went to uh, GW to study IR. I said it'd be a great way to kind of focus on this uh, area of the, you know, study and area of political science that really interests me. And, you know, it'll be great prep for for law school. And uh, within a year of doing IR, I think I, I said goodbye to law school dreams and, and was just enamored and, and very interested in, in just sort of what was happening around the world. And um, I think what I did was really start to a little bit play the field of, you know, what was happening around the world. Uh, of course, when I was studying IR, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan were major topics of security policy and security studies for the United States. Uh, it was a lot of, you know, my contemporaries studying Arabic uh, for their languages when they came to GW and uh, tried to sort of, you know, get into that. And uh, in as much as it was really interesting to learn about the issues on the ground there, I just, you know, you, you kind of find that there is not enough fuel in the tank to keep you going for four years of, you know, writing a thesis or writing papers or things like that. I, I did the same thing about Latin America or Africa. And, and that's, the, I think, the beauty of studying at GW is you have uh, professors and, and fellow students that allow you to kind of explore the world and, and get really you know, deep into a region if you want. And uh, somewhere midway through my second year at university, I just uh, uh, rediscovered India. I think it was the Indian uh, Mars mission launch, and I was taking a space policy course, uh, which counted for international relations, you know, how, how global uh, space policy is going and how countries are engaging uh, space, whether there are norms and rules that they're following. And I wrote my uh, my final paper for that class on India's Mars mission and how it was able to uh, achieve such an ambition and such a goal that I think a handful of countries had done at that point, just the US and China and Russia. And um, that really got me back into India. Of course, I grew up there, but that really got me to, into India in, a, in an academic way. And uh, since then, I've I've kind of focused my career around wanting to answer the questions that I have about India. And that's been through some work in management consulting where I got to kind of do a little bit of work uh, on India, working with nonprofit clients that were, you know, looking at India and, and trying to solve some of the big societal problems that are there. I was obviously at a think tank at CSIS, you know, doing research on India. I'm now uh, leading some of the global expansion work at Indiaspora, which is a diaspora focused organization of global Indian origin leaders and, and you know, trying to take uh, our organization, which has been 
focused on the U.S. for the last uh, nine years since our founding, uh, to be active in a at a global level in the U.K. and in Canada and the United Arab Emirates and Singapore. So, um, really, my my career, I, I like to say that you know it, it it's taken different forms. It's been in nonprofit management, or it's been in strategy consulting, or it's been in uh, think tank research, but all kind of focused around, I think, answering some of the questions that I have about India, its future, the future of its people, both at home and in the diaspora, and just just trying to answer them through through professional opportunities that come up along the way. And I hope that I can continue to keep doing that uh, for the future. You know, I think that's a really healthy way to think about your career. I mean, our careers generally, right? I think if we're constantly chasing questions, right, trying to understand what's going on, that's kind of my where my love of, uh, I'd say, economics, global geopolitics, everything's wrapped together. And of course, I'm a lawyer by trade, and so how the law underpins all of that. So I'm constantly trying to figure out what's going on. You know, the world's so big and complicated. How do I make sense of any of this? And I hope I'm making some strides. But honestly, at the end of the day, the world is so complicated. I appreciate people like you who are subject matter experts that that can really break it down and digest uh, what's happening for the rest of us. I think Fred gets credit for uh, finding you first, finding your work on, on India Log. Uh, we both follow your newsletter. I think we're going to ask you about that in a little bit, but I just wanted to say it, it's been a lot of fun to follow you and really appreciate your high level analysis and understanding of what's going on in India as I've been trying to understand, all right, this is a, this is a big country, a lot of people, you said, and the diaspora is doing things all over the world too. So, um, and a lot of this stems from one of my best friends growing up in, in rural Wisconsin was from India. He moved into town when he was in, he and I were both in third grade. And so we were, we were friends all through school. So I was exposed to his, you know, his languages at home, his culture, the food, and it was uh, honestly a lot of fun for me uh, being in a place where we didn't have a lot of diversity. Yeah. No, thank you so much for the kind words about, about the newsletter. Happy to, you know, chat about that. And, uh, you know, I've had that same experience where, you know, I, I was an immigrant. I moved here when I was 13 years old. And, uh, you know, again, it was in New Jersey, so a bit more, you know, of an Indian community. But for still, you know, that syncretism that comes of, you know, kind of uh, sharing your culture, sharing your language with people that, are interested and, and excited and eager to learn about India is always uh, joy-inducing, I think, for any Indian person, but especially for, for me who, who can talk about India for, for hours and hours, as, as my friends and colleagues can tell you. So, uh, you know, happy to dive into any areas of India that, that y'all want to take me to. Um, there's a lot that I want to, to cover, but as a preliminary question, if you will, I'd like to ask you to talk a bit about what working at a think tank entails. I'm curious as to what happens be behind the scenes. On the one hand, I have this perhaps romantic idea of um, experts uh, like yourself sitting in a in a nice office in, in, in DC and 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 you know having a, a cup of coffee and just just letting the ideas flow. If you, if you could help us color between the spaces, you know what's working at a think tank like as a as a, as a practical matter on a day-to-day basis. Sure. Yeah. I, I wish it was as, uh, as exciting as I think you, you said it, which is, you know, you grab a cup of coffee and you just let the ideas flow. Um, I think, uh, you know, we tend to do um, a lot of work that, you know, kind of feels and resembles like that. You know, you are coming up with ideas, but it is, it is, you know, hardly, I think an individual's effort. And I think that that's one thing that, you know, I um I like to say about think tanks is is it's it's incredibly collaborative and the ideas are just generated you know in in a team format. But let me let me zoom out at the start and just kind of uh, talk a little bit about you know uh, how the day to day kind of works. Really, the end goal is to uh, influence and shape either conversations about policy at the low level and then policy itself at the high level. And so you know what you're trying to do is make sure that if you have ideas about um, where the direction of policy should go. And for us, you know, uh, we did this both influencing or in, in shaping conversations as well as policies in India, but also in the U.S. and its policies towards India. Um, you know, it is uh, a matter of, uh, I think, really three things. One is writing and, and contributing research, uh, evidence-based kind of analysis and recommendations that can advance 
uh, you know, your recommendations about policy. Uh, the second is convenings. You have to get the people in the right room and, and you know, make sure that they can discuss, share amongst each other and, and talk about it sometimes behind closed doors so that there are honest discussions about what the roadblocks are, whether it's, you know, bureaucratic hurdles, whether it's, you know, political will hurdles, whether it's budgetary hurdles. Um, and then I think there's also a level of public intellectualism, which is the more, uh, you know, outward focused events that we do, uh, trying to educate uh, not just the elites, the policymakers or the bureaucrats or, or the leaders, uh, but also uh, the general public at large about your ideas and, and why they should have a vested interest uh, in the advancement of a particular policy recommendation or not. So those are, I think, broadly the three things uh, that we try and do uh, in order to shape uh, you know, at, at the low-hanging fruit, at least the, 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 the conversations around policy. We try and, you know, add new ideas to the mix. Some of them, you know, well, some, some think tanks are very good at, uh, you know, Overton window things, trying to bring in ideas that were outside of the mainstream for a long time and trying to make them more palatable. And then, you know, at the really sort of high level, the most effective think tanks, I think, can actually shape policy and can craft and make compelling arguments and, and, and get them to the right audience that those recommendations are actually translated into, into actual policy. And so, you know, a day can be anywhere from, you know, um, so for example, our program at, at, um, at the Wadwani chair had three broad areas. You know, we worked on uh, one of the areas that I, I really was passionate about, which is a U.S.-India defense and security relationships. And we did a lot of work there. The second area was on shaping India's domestic reform agenda and trying to, uh, you know, underscore how those economic reforms, how they might unleash a new era of job creation, sustainable middle-class creation and, and growth for, for India. And then the third, uh, which was very unique to our program at CSIS, is a focus on subnational entities within India, especially states. And uh, because states, much like in the United States, have a lot of enumerated powers under the, under the Constitution of India, uh, they get to control uh, budget and implementation for things like energy policy, for health and sanitation, for water, for uh, law and order, for um, you know a whole host of issues. And so, how can we work with subnational entities to advance uh, you know uh, climate change related goals? For example, you know India is not going to meet climate change goals just because the center said it would, but you know uh, because the states uh, take forward the implementation of having. A clean energy grid or having solar power be a majority of the power that Indian consumers use, that, that's going to be a, led by uh, subnational entities rather than the national uh, political class. And so, you know, we uh, would, you know, spend our days writing recommendations and papers, e either publish uh, privately uh, and sent to uh, government authorities or publish publicly, you know, at CSIS uh, as, as issue briefs or as uh, commentaries, or we would try and get them placed in in popular media, you know, at, at uh, as op eds, you know, to try and advance a particular argument of why uh, policy should be changed, advanced, uh, doubled down on. Uh, we would convene uh, state, you know, government leaders on energy policy or on health policy to discuss the challenges that they faced. Uh, one of the key things that we did, for example, is recognize that there was a lot of uh, learning that could happen. If we put brought together the you know chief energy bureaucrat in India, uh, but chief energy bureaucrat at a state in India, so say the state of Maharashtra, which you know uh, is home to the uh, the financial capital Mumbai, uh, how do you power that that state, which is you know about you know uh, 200, 150, 200 million people, um, and how do you try and you know match them with someone like in California who has really you know taken steps forward on the transition to clean energy? And are there things that the chief energy bureaucrat of Maharashtra can learn from California? Are there uh, innovative, low-cost solutions that California may not have thought of, but they could learn from Maharashtra? And how do you convene these two individuals and their teams behind sometimes closed doors, sometimes open doors, and, and in public conversations so that they can have frank, open discussions on how the two countries can maybe collaborate on climate change as they you know, try to get to a net zero or, or a carbon neutral future? Those are the kinds of things that, you know, we, we would advance at, at CSIS. So in, in some ways it is, you know, uh, at, at the top level, it feels like we're, we're coming up with ideas, but really we're, we're trying to learn from 
uh, how other countries have maybe done it, learn from how countries are doing it in India and what lessons are there for the U.S., how the U.S. may have done some things and what lessons are for India, and really try and you know, shape policy so that we can achieve shared goals that these two countries have um, on climate change, on uh, healthcare and pandemics, you know, now that COVID-19 has come uh, front and center for us, how can, you know, U.S. and India collaborate on pandemics together? Uh, as we found, you know, here, it's the state governments that control how pandemic response works. So how can New York and the state of uh, West Bengal work together? You know, are there learnings that they can learn from each other on how they did testing, how they did uh, vaccinations, how they did, uh, you know, lockdowns and managing, you know, contact tracing. Uh, those are the kinds of things that at least from a state level we did. And we did the same thing on security and defense and the same thing on economics. Uh, you know, we, we would publish our results, we would convene individuals, and we would do a lot of things for public consumption so that uh, even voters and interested parties could get involved in these discussions and you know, sometimes uh, recognize uh, positive momentum that's happening with uh, some of these countries and sometimes in key moments like the ongoing, uh, you know, conference of parties that's happening in Glasgow on climate change, make sure that they know, you know, uh, what steps India is taking, what steps the U.S. is taking and be a part of that conversation and push the government sometimes to do some of the right things on, on climate change and make some of the right decisions, uh, even if they will be costly. Uh, that happens, I think, through think tanks and public education that, that we can do, uh, translating, I think, things that are uh, a little bit more technical and detailed into ways that uh, can be consumed by uh, interested voters, uh, interested general audience, and, and make that sort of a, a broad conversation about the future of, of the U.S.-India relationship and the future of their countries. Uh, you know, shared goals and dreams and ideals. So that's, I think, in short, how I saw the the role of being at a think tank. So I'm on, I'm curious, as someone who grew up in India, came to the United States, and now you're working directly with U.S. and India policymakers and and other uh, prominent people. How are you received back home in India? Do they look at you as an outsider, as an insider, as a helpful collaborator, as a nuisance? What, what kind of experiences have you had if, as you've been trying to uh, engage in this dialogue between both countries? Yeah, it's a good, it's a great question. I I think on the most part, it's been a very positive experience. Although I think uh, any any think tanker sometimes now, given that it, it involves you know, being publicly active on social media or, you know, in writing gets sometimes the allegation that you are, you know, uh, uh, advancing American interests or, you know, you, you, you've gone to the West and, and, you know, you don't care that much about India. Sometimes you get the, the very uh, culturally, you know, specific phrase, uh, a brown sepoy on Twitter. Sometimes if you make an argument that goes against a particular political uh, ideology or, you know, someone's particular political inclinations, uh, which you know kind of refer references the uh, uh, the the soldiers that you know served in the British colonial army, and so you know you kind of uh, get some allegations like that. On the whole, I think I most people see um, people from the diaspora, and especially those that are working on policy issues, as helpful translators, as helpful people that can see both sides of you know uh, what each country's national interests are try and find ways that, you know, when those conflict to try and diffuse them earlier on, anticipate them and, and try and diffuse them. Um, I still, for me, I'm, I'm still an Indian citizen. I still have my Indian passport and, and, you know, I have family back home in India. So I, I consider myself still, you know, uh, uh, in large part Indian in the way that I, uh, you know, not just my nationality, but in the way that sort of I approach my, my desire to study India and, and the reasons why I'm interested in policy questions about India. Um, so I think it's it's just about, you know, kind of shaking that off sometimes when people have those arguments that you're not, you know, you're undermining India and you're supporting a foreign power when you're there. That's really not what we're trying to do, uh, especially in the policy realm. We we don't make policy and we we can try and influence it. Uh, but we we try, at least in my research, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone else, but in my research, I try uh, to advance something that I think is a shared goal and a shared interest between these two countries, um, as well as a shared vision, uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a positive vision that I see for India when I write about India policy, uh, not just U.S.-India relations, but things that India should take forward. Um, I try not to care that much about 
political inclinations or leanings. I, I you know, have lived outside of, uh, of India as long as I've been uh, a voting age. So I haven't had the opportunity to vote in an Indian election since, since I became an adult. Uh, but my, so I have no political leanings, but my, my uh, desire is always to advance what I think is the best, uh, you know, policy that will advance India's national interest. Uh, and I try and argue within all of my writings what I think uh, India's national interest is within this particular issue. So, for example, let's take the Indo-Pacific and, you know, why India should collaborate uh, on naval issues or on critical technology or on climate change with the United States and with Australia and with Japan under the aegis of the Quad. Why is that within India's national security interest? I try and define that in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my writings and then, you know, argue that this is the kind of policy changes that we need to take on the defense side or on the military policy side or on the foreign affairs side to advance that particular national interest. And here's why the existing policy may not be doing it to the extent that we need, or here are what the roadblocks of the existing policy are, or here's why it's creating friction with our partners and why it needs to be resolved. So I, I try and take a, a, a broader kind of look at, at what India's interests are and, and why those interests would be achieved better with something that I may be recommending or talking about or suggesting a different path on. Um, and I think that as long as that, I think, is the, is the rule for any think tanker, I, I, I think that um, any allegations of them saying that, oh, you're, you know, uh, advancing someone else's interest or you're, tr you know, betraying the national interest of India in favor of others. And that really comes up, you know, when issues like India's turn away potentially from secularism and towards Hindu majoritarianism and why that would make India a less attractive partner in the Indo-Pacific, why that would raise questions about India's commitment to values of democracy, of secularism, of, uh, of uh, human rights around the world. That, I think, you know, uh, is when you start getting those attacks. And I, I still maintain that, you know, a lot of uh, that is rooted in uh, a desire to make sure that we're achieving India's national interest. And those are rooted in my opinion, and, and I strongly believe that, in India maintaining its secular democratic character. And so, you know, people may see that as, oh, you've gone to the West and you have Western sensibilities now and you need to, you know, understand how Asia works or the world works. Or you might see that as people saying that you're trying to peddle a particular political ideology. I, I disagree. I, I think it's just about trying to advance India's national interest. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, engage someone in a productive conversation on why I think a secular democratic identity, for example, is in India's national interest compared to another uh, form of identity that may be in that that some uh, might be in favor of. So, how do you feel India is doing now? Or let's let's take the last twenty years, right? I mean, I I turned forty this year, so I'd say I started paying attention to the world about twenty years ago. I wasn't really a, a, a you know an. A, Political. I wasn't a political major in in college. I didn't pay attention in high school. I didn't. I took uh, I took the easy classes uh, and I enjoyed my time in high school. But I got serious when I got to to college. Right when I had my first international experiences. So let's take the last twenty years because a lot has happened. Uh, often I go back to that time when Fred and I are talking with guests about China, because China really started to turn the corner around two thousand two thousand one when it joined the WTO. So let's talk about the last two decades in India if we can go that. Uh, that global, uh, and give us your maybe your overall scorecard on the things that you see India is doing well, things that that can be improved. And I think we're going to get into the U.S. India, U.S. other international relationships later. But since you you've been paying attention to India, I'd really love I really love hearing from insiders. Uh, you know, how do you think how do you think it's doing? How's India doing? It's been you know a remarkable transformation over the twenty years. I think there are specific years and specific policies that we can disagree on, but I think on the overall picture, it would be hard to uh, disagree with the fact that you know when you look at uh, where India was in two thousand or even when its initial reforms period started in nineteen in nineteen ninety one uh, when it started reforming its economy to where it's come to now. It has transformed incredibly in, in those last 20 or 30 years. Uh, we have built up uh, a, a middle class. We have advanced uh, our economy and, and you know, turned it into one of the, you know, the top 10 economies of the world. You know, we have integrated with the rest of the world and, and, and created um, you know, uh, opportunities for progress and growth through leveraging technology, mobile phones, digital payments, uh, we've brought a lot of prosperity to corners uh, of India that, 
you know, needed to re- create, create that, uh, needed to breach that level of prosperity and, and needed to feel that, you know, uh, that, that they were advancing uh, in their personal lives as well as the country advancing at a, at a global stage. So I think that's a definitely happened. Um, I think uh, three things continue to really plague India in terms of uh, preventing, I think, uh, reaching its full potential. The first, I think, is is going to be, uh, and this is more, I think, relevant to the uh, earlier part of uh, the last two decades, but corruption and, uh, you know, sort of public pilfering and, and uh, the, the role of ministers and bureaucrats in, in skimming off the top of government contracts or, you know, taking sort of uh, personal advantages of, of their, you know, power and roles in government uh, was definitely a, a huge drain on how far India could be seen as a country to do business in and, um, and the ability for uh, all of the benefits of our economic growth and our ability to engage and interact with the world and globalize our economy, uh, we've lost some of those benefits because they've gone to uh, corrupt officials or corrupt ministers or you know, corruption at large. And this is systemic. I think you know, it, it's, it happens at the national level, but I think it also happens in state government levels. Uh, there's a lot of you know, skimming off the top and pilfering of resources when it comes to uh, rations and things like that that you can hear stories about in India. There's tons of you know research, evidentiary research that's been done on you know why some of the uh, uh, support like cash transfers or rations or food packages that should have been allocated to people who are poor uh, sometimes don't even get there because as it gets through middleman after middleman or as it gets from a policy dictated from you know either the the, the top of the state government or the central government to the executor on the ground. People have taken their unfair share along along the way. Um, that has changed a little bit. Um, you know, I can I can say that there's at least in the last seven or eight years no concrete evidence of any um, you know major uh, corruption scandal or scam that's happened in India under the last uh, uh, seven or eight years since 2014. The Prime Minister Modi has come to power. He he did come to power with that message of good governance and of uh, of uh, cleaning up, I think uh, the the issues that were there with previous governments on on kickbacks and and corruption scandals. But I think there's not yet been a systemic change top to bottom on making sure that that gets a little bit better. And I think there's still work to be done. You know, I think at the national level, and and there's been no ministerial level, you know, scams or things like that. But I think you know there are still gaps and holes to be plugged of uh, of you know, medium size or small size corruption that really snowballs and avalanches into becoming a um, a major drain on Indian state resources. So that remains that remains one. I think the second, I think as we just talked about, is a ongoing uh, and and very uh, rich, uh, argumentative, passionate, uh, problematic at times discussion that happens about the future of India's identity, whether it's going to be a a secular democratic country or whether it's going to be a uh, country in which a, a Hindu majority asserts its right uh, and, and tries to correct whether real or perceived wrongs, but wrongs that it sees have been done to the Hindu majority and, and you know, tries to advance a politics of, of uh, you know, uh, reasserting power and, and reasserting themselves as, as drivers of the Indian future. I think there is a uh, that goes, I think, to the heart of, of what India wants to be uh, moving forward. And, and I think there, um, are, uh, there are significant implications for how that debate plays out, not just internally about the character of Indian democracy and, and, and what it wants to be for itself, but also its ability to partner and, uh, and be an effective, uh, you know, uh, sought after partner uh, on the foreign relations and, and in the international stage. And I think that remains a a, a discussion that the outcome of which will remain extremely uh, influential and impactful. And I think the third is, you know, since we're talking about uh, advancement of, of um, India's economy, India's ability to be a great power, I think the third uh, thing is, is getting a lot of the policy tools right to achieve the goals that we have. I think we are still sometimes not thinking in, in structural ways and big systemic ways about how we can change. I think we sometimes tinker around the edges on policy uh, and on changes. So for example, you know, 
reforming the economy and things like that, I think, you know, we, we sometimes undertake reforms that aren't systemic in nature, uh, but do sort of uh, taper around the edges or are uh, reforms that, that are not high impact and are billed as very high impact. Uh, for example, you know, a, a long-term issue, for, I think, for India has been, and I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert on this, but this is something that I followed, is India's banking system and, and you know, the, the level to which there are bad loans, toxic assets that haven't been cleaned up. And, uh, you know, we have tried to take corrective action and, the, you know, the central bank has worked with banks to identify, you know, how deep this mess of, of toxic assets goes and, you know, why this is going to prevent, you know, banks from giving credit, which prevents economic growth and kind of allowing businesses to flourish. Uh, we haven't been able to tackle that problem in a systemic way. We've papered around the edges and tried to take steps, but really haven't, I think, done the systemic change that needs to happen in that in that realm. I think the same thing with reforming India's defense industry and how we procure uh, weapons from abroad. I think there's still reforms that have happened that have changed tactically how we do it and improved some processes at a tactical level, but not at the systemic or strategic level, you know, big kind of things that an overhaul that sometimes is needed. We haven't had uh, the the either it's a political will or a bureaucratic inertia or or some other things that have prevented I think uh, the big changes from happening that need to happen now. And I think the India will continue advancing. I think that uh, given the scale of its population and given how much buying power just Indians have, we're going to continually see some level of growth. But I think the pace and the scale of that growth can really be amplified if we can take some of these big structural changes on. And I think that's the difference between kind of seeing, you know, as, as people talk about top line figures of India, you know, a, a growth level that, you know, I mean, this is pre-pandemic numbers, post-pandemic, the numbers are a little bit different because, of, you know, how the economy has been battered and how quickly it's going to kind of recover, but really kind of growing at, at significant levels of, you know, pre-pandemic uh, five, six, seven percent, and getting us to that 10, 11, 12 percent. India is going to grow at 20 percent next year, but that's because we had a shellacking last year and, and kind of contracted our economy last year. But as we get back to a post pandemic normal, you know, if we can take some of these big structural reforms and, and kind of advance a, a restructuring of, uh, of how we approach uh, both on the economic side and on, you know, other areas, climate change, you know, military and, and security technology. Um, critical technologies and how we incorporate AI, robotics, Internet of Things across the board. I think we've we've had a tendency to to you know taper around the edges and and not really go for the big structural change. And I think we are at a unique point now where you know we have uh, arguably one political party that controls uh, the national level political process. They have a majority or a working majority at least in uh, both houses of parliament, and and there's no kind of um, you know, uh, coalition managing that needs to happen. So we have the opportunity to maybe take some of these changes on. Um, but I think uh, if we can do it, that can also change and, and influence the trajectory of India moving forward. So let's talk about the U.S.-India relationship. And obviously, there's a lot that we could we could talk about. Going back to what Jonathan said, for um, folks who have not been following international affairs for that long, it is possible for them to to see the relationship between the U.S. and India in a relatively positive light. But I'm old enough to to remember when, when the two countries were not as close. And, and that, that wasn't that long ago. So, so I think, at least from my perspective, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, I think there's something to comment on there and if not celebrate, right, the fact that there has been, uh, at least the way I see it, without doubt, Clear traction uh, in in the building of that that relationship in a in a in a, in a way that's meaningful and beneficial uh, for 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 both countries. But I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on on the relationship and sort of taking a a look at the future. I, I at least for me, I think it's 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 impossible really to to think of, think about the. The, the big picture going forward and then how the world is going to look in, in 30, 50 years without placing India at the heart of, of how that world is, is going to look. Uh, 
how uh, it interacts with with other important players that that that's um that's another question but 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 for me it, it seems clear that whatever uh the world's future looks like um, like I said, in 30, 40, 50 years, uh, India is going to be at the heart of that. And of course, um, much of that will, will also have to do with the relationship that the country has with, with the U.S. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Fred, that, you know, uh, relationships with India have had, uh, U.S.-India relations have had an up and down kind of uh, uh, tempo over the last, I mean, since, since, you know, India became independent, it's been up and down. Uh, there were some really rocky moments. I think there there was a time when relationships were bad. You know, there uh, in the 1970s, there's the, the famous story of you know Nixon and Kissinger almost ordering a uh, carrier battle group to the Bay of Bengal. You know, about uh, because they they saw India's uh, you know uh, moves and support for uh, the independence of Bangladesh and its involvement in that in that war between you know Bangladesh Liberation War or you know the East Pakistan's independence from uh, from from the Pakistani state as as a negative or ne- you know negative for uh, U.S. Uh, national security interests that they were trying to do with opening up China and, and working with Pakistan on that front. So relationships were bad uh, before, have been I think at times bad. Uh, the United States sanctioned India for its nuclear tests in in the '90s under the Clinton administration when India tested nuclear weapons. So you know we have come in in that time in those. 20 years that I think we, we talked about before, uh, when India tested its nuclear weapons in the late 90s to where we are now, it has been a significant transformation in relationships. We've gone from uh, a significant low to a very significant high. Uh, and part of that has been, you know, a recognition of um, shared ideals and interests. You know, the, the phrase, if you're talking about U.S.-India relations, it you, you've heard this a million times, I think, uh, when these two countries are mentioned together, that it's the largest democracy and the oldest democracy. Uh, but, you know, even independent of that, there are uh, there is a shared kind of vision for the world. There is a shared uh, values on how, you know, uh, the international order should be structured. India has benefited from uh, a U.S.-created international order and may seek to support it. And that has only become, I think, more acute, these, these shared concerns and shared uh, ideals and shared values have become more acute when they've been threatened now, uh, arguably by an aggressive China that may wish to alter the character of the international order and and change, um, you know how that order behaves. And I think uh, India and the United States have felt the brunt of what aggressive Chinese actions and assertive Chinese actions have been. Uh, whether that is you know on the economic front, India has a massive. Uh, trade deficit with China and has, you know, uh, uh, significantly high-ranking uh, officials from the Indian government have said that they suspect, uh, you know, China of of having unfair trade practices and and you know of dumping on uh, India's economy and not allowing reciprocal access to Indian goods where they would have a comparative advantage. Um, on the military side, I mean, this the last two years have seen perhaps what is the worst relationship. Uh, point uh, point in the relationship between uh, the Indians and the Chinese since 1962, when the two countries fought a war, the, the first time in almost 45 years that there have been casualties along the uh, along the border between India and China, uh, a souring of relations between the U.S. and China uh, taking place also uh, since uh, you know Xi Jinping really came to power, and so these kinds of I think shared concerns about. Not just, I would say, um, Chinese behavior, but the implications of of that on the kind of order that has facilitated India's growth, the globalization that has allowed India to integrate with and trade with countries around the world, that has allowed it to create a prosperous and, and growing middle class. Um, all of those, I think, are, are front of mind for the U.S. and and, and for India, and that allows them to. Uh, you know, find ways to work and collaborate together as well as with other countries. And you've seen them rope in, uh, for example, Australia and Japan in the in the Quad in the Indo-Pacific. Just uh, last month, you know, there was the announcement of a new grouping, which is sort of being con- called an Eastern Quad of the United Arab Emirates and Israel working together with U.S. and India. There's, you know, so many of these tri- and quadrilateral groupings that are coming together uh, for these countries, uh, for the U.S. and uh, around the U.S. and India to kind of work together, but um, despite this growing level of closeness, I think there remain 
some uh, areas in which you know, we haven't taken the relationship far enough. Uh, one is certainly economics and trade. We, we still, I think, uh, don't trade nearly as closely as we should, the U.S. and India. There are a lot of underlying and bubbling issues on trade, whether it's India's approach to data localization or India's, you know, uh, levy on internet services, or whether it's, uh, it's you know, uh, hammer that it's taken to uh, foreign e-commerce players in order to protect its domestic retail industry. Uh, all of those things, I think, are, are still under the radar for a lot of people, uh, but are growing concerns that are going to affect the character of uh, U.S.-India relations if they are left unattended and, and allowed to fester. Um, I think the second is, you know, as we're figuring out, it's been in the news for the last few days, is India's relationship with Russia. And, uh, you know, how much room do we have within each other to partner with countries that uh, we think, you know, in the U.S. or maybe in India would think are, are inimical to uh, our security interests? And Russia certainly poses that for the United States, having interfered in domestic uh, elections and challenged, you know, uh, NATO and, 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 and invaded and, and tried to conquer uh, neighboring countries, be that, you know, the Crimean Peninsula or, or its actions against Ukraine. And India sees it very differently in, in, in the historic long-term relationship that it's had with Russia, uh, a friend that was with it when the United States actually was, you know, partnering with Pakistan and China. It saw uh, Russia standing by it and preserving its security interest and, and national interest. And so, uh, there's, you know, conversations that are broad and at a 30,000 foot level about, you know, how much space there is for India to continue deepening its relationship with Russia while partnering with the United States. But it becomes very, very uh, tactical very quickly, which is, you know, India is trying to purchase its um, a, a weapon system, a uh, uh, the S-400 missile defense system from Russia. And uh, per U.S. law, if they proceed with that transaction and that that uh, missile system is delivered to India, India could, and according to U.S. law, should face sanctions for that purchase. And, and if that happens, you know, it's going to be a major step back in relations. It's going to signal to India that perhaps the United States is not able to overcome uh, a defense purchase in favor of collaboration on, on, you know, more important things. That's how India might see it. For the U.S., it might see it as an inability to understand the threat that Russia poses to uh, its own interest. And leaving that kind of an issue unfestered for long and, and unresolved for long uh, will kind of inhibit the pace at which the relationship can advance. And so these are some of the things that I think still remain unresolved in the U.S.-India relationship. And, uh, you know, we will have to uh, find ways to address them. I think the mechanisms are there. I think the underlying foundation is so strong that I think that we will find a way to resolve these issues. But um, this is not to say that the relationship is perfect and, you know, that all things are well. Well, it'll be hard work for these two countries to continue to collaborate and work together. Uh, but the good thing is that they have the, the structural foundations in place uh, for how um, they, should, uh, they should collaborate given the sh shared, you know, values and, and shared ideals that they have. And the fact that those shared values and ideals, they agree, are under threat from uh, a shared adversary that, that both of them are, are starting to recognize in China. Um, and so I think, um, you know, in that regard, uh, I think the impetus is there for both of these countries to uh, strengthen their relations. Now, the, the outside risk is always if these, is these, uh, these conditions that enable cooperation change. So, for example, if, if, if you know, either country starts to differentiate uh, the, the conditions and, and starts to see differently the conditions that make collaboration possible. Either they start to not see China as the threat to shared values and ideals, uh, so there's an accommodation of China, or if they disagree about what values and ideals that they share, whether they don't share the values on uh, democratic values, on secularism, on human rights, on, on making sure that minority rights and religious minorities are cared for, then that also inhibits the tempo of, of collaboration. And that's what I think goes back to the earlier conversation we were happening, we were having on, um, on India's, you know, pivot away from secularism and towards maybe a form of Hindu majoritarianism is that um, in as much as people would like to kind of have uh, the ability to go forward and do that. And, and, you know, certainly the, the BJP has 
its roots in that kind of a politics. Um, there's no denying the fact that there is that potential impact on the pace and tenor of U.S.-India relations. And that is something they have to grapple with if they are going to go in that direction, because it undermines the level to which you can say that they share those values and those ideals. Um, and so that, I think, is the third kind of outside risk is do we start to either differentiate in the way that we start to see China uh, as the shared threat to shared values and ideals? Or do we start to differ on the way that we see our shared values and ideals and see that there's more gap in them than, than has been in the last 20 years that's allowed this relationship to grow? And I think that is the, the outside, you know, the, the kind of the, the, uh, the elephant in the room, sort of the, the big thing that, you know, could, could uh, happen. I'm not saying it will. I'm not saying it is. Uh, but I think there are uh, things that we should, you know, uh, be talking about in that regard to ensure that that doesn't pose a risk to the future um, collaboration and, and cooperation uh, between these two countries. Um, and I think we could talk for hours more about this. So we hope we can have you back on the podcast at some point. But we're, we're definitely at time now. But we like to close with recommendations from you, from me, from Fred, something you've read recently or watched or listened to or maybe something, some of your old go-to favorites when you're trying to reset your brain for something. And this could be completely on point or off, off topic. So do you have any recommendations for the audience and for us? Oh, I, uh, I can give you a couple. I'll try and keep this to both uh, uh, fiction and, and nonfiction. I think there, on the nonfiction side, if people are interested in some of the things that we've talked about, there are some incredible books that have come out over the last two or three years that go really into uh, detail about, uh, about the, you know, the future of India and its relationships with the world. Uh, three that I'll recommend now, uh, one of my favorite scholars is uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Srinath Raghavan based at Ashoka University. He's written some incredible books, but I think War and Peace in Modern India is uh, one text that I, I, I see from an academic sense is, is something that I will really uh, always go back to. Um, a second that I can always recommend is um, Dr. Tanvi Madan, who is uh, an incredible scholar of uh, the U.S.-India-China Triangle. Her book, The Fateful Triangle, uh, which came out, I believe, two or three years ago, takes a look at how this triangular relationship has advanced over the last, uh, uh, over the first element of uh, you know U.S.-India ties, so from the 40s to the about the, the late 70s, and I think she's working on the second volume of that book to take us to, I think, the present. And uh, any of her all, you know, uh, non-book related writings, I would also highly recommend. And then, you know, if I can go to something uh, fictional that can, uh, you know, just uh, showcase uh, sometimes what is uh, the beauty of, of India and, and some of its uh, culture and its history, uh, I think, uh, um, you know, there's this uh, fantastic book that my uh, that that my family has has held very close called The Palace of Illusions, which takes the mythological texts of the of the Mahabharata. But uh, the first book that she wrote called The Palace of Illusions, uh, which uh, you know looks at the only I think major female character within the the Mahabharata, uh, and uh, writes uh, the events of that mythological text. Uh, and, and that really close text, I think, for, for a lot of Hindus that, that may have read it or, you know, a lot of people that may have come across the Bhagavad Gita, uh, they take, you know, a perspective on Draupadi, the, the main female character that's there, and, and writes sort of a fictional narrative from her perspective. And I think that's a very rich and interest, interesting perspective. And so if people are interested in something that's a bit more on the fiction side, I'd recommend that. So uh, those are three that I can leave you with. Excellent. Thank you. Fred, what do you have for us today? Well, first of all, I'd like to recommend Indialog just just to make sure that uh, it it it's uh, registered as an official global law and business recommendation. My my second recommendation is um, India related, and and I it, it's very timely. I uh, finished watching this last night. Uh, it, it's not for everyone. Uh, it, it's definitely a, a bit bit harrowing. It, it's a, a Netflix limited series, you know, relatively short, three episodes. House of Secrets, the Burari deaths, and even leaving aside the the India connection, it's just a it's just a fascinating story. Um, but at the same time, of course, it, it does um, it concerns events that, that take place in in Delhi. Fascinating. I just I, I was blown away by the the production values, just the 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 imagery. I mean, they did an excellent job with with the drones. There were also 
parts of the of the series that uh, were filmed elsewhere uh, in in India, the countryside. Um, it, it it was just um, I, I I thought it was great. Again, not for everyone. Obviously, a very difficult subject to to address. So again, House of Secrets: The Burari Deaths on Netflix. Jonathan, what about you? What do you have? And today, I'm recommending the Deep Dish podcast. This is produced by the Chicago Council. And uh, for a flavor of some recent topics, uh, one is inside China's nuclear strategy, domestic terrorism and the aftermath of war, talking about Afghanistan, uh, the debate on U.S.-Taiwan policy, what do Americans want from Biden's foreign policy. So Fred and I have often had this conversation as we've discussed the focus of our podcast on how broad versus how deep we go. And so um, if you're looking for a real deep subject matter expertise, um, I recommend this podcast. And with that, Amon, we want to thank you again for your time today. You've been extremely uh, informative, uh, enjoyable to, to talk to, and uh, we certainly look forward to tracking your work on Indialog and also uh, keeping up professionally with you as, as we all try to figure out what's going on all around the world. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, so looking forward to continuing engaging with you on, on all things India. Uh, thank you for being such loyal readers of, uh, of the newsletter, Indialog. Uh, look forward to catching up with you either on a future podcast, uh, over email, anything else. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.